Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 27, Heavy Are the Crowns. Now, first, a couple of announcements. A big thanks to my friend Sal Verani for, inter- for increasing his donation and finally getting us to $75 per episode. Okay, actually 74 but close enough. This means I'm going to do my very best to get two episodes out in October. So big thank- thanks to Sal and to other Patreon supporters. You guys are all amazing. Also, apologies for the audio issues on last week's episode. Uh, I'm going to go back and re-record it and re-release an episode with that issue fixed. So, we're going to take care of that. And now, time for this episode. The views from what are now called the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara are hazy blue, with the soft outlines of distant hills and Istanbul glittering in the distance. Even in the 11th century, you could see Constantinople on a clear day. You could, but Emperor Romanos IV couldn't. The stinking holes where his eyes had been saw no clear blue vistas. Their only remaining function was to feel this unending, dull pain. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We left off last time with Byzantium in a treacherous position. Constantine X was on the throne and his policies were dramatically weakening the empire by disbanding armies, putting his incompetent friends in critical positions of power and generally mismanaging things. Somehow, in spite of this, the empire is still holding on and keeping its enemies at bay. But how long? Can that last with the Hungarians, the Pechenegs, the Serbs, the Seljuk Turks, and yes, even the Bulgarians, all watching and waiting and wondering when it's time for them to take their piece of the empire? Now, we're in the mid-1060s, and it's time to answer that question. The first losses for the Byzantines came from an unexpected source. The Normans, under their famous leader Robert Giscard, who took nearly all of southern Italy from the Byzantines in this period. It was a humiliating loss, but still not a strike at the core of the empire. But there was much more going on. Far from Italy, events were accelerating. The great-grandson of the founder of the Seljuk dynasty, was a man named Alp Arslan, or Heroic Lion in his Turkish dialect. He had risen to power in 1063. The man was experienced. He had fought and commanded with his uncle in campaigns across what's now Iran, becoming the governor of that region of the growing Seljuk Empire. Then, when his father died and his other uncle tried to take the throne that was his by birthright, Alp Arslan started a civil war, and he won that civil war, executing his uncle in the process. 
In short, Alp Arslan was battle-hardened. The man had been fighting since he was a boy. He was ready to murder his own family to take what was his. He could fire arrows from horseback. He could command and know that he would be obeyed. So, it's no surprise that this man, Alp Arslan, rode into the battle at the head of his Turkic cavalry, confident in his victory. In 1066, he moved in and captured the capital of Cappadocia before turning his eyes north towards Georgia and Armenia. Soon, he besieged the capital of the Armenian kingdom Ani for 25 days. When it surrendered, he showed no mercy. An Arab historian quotes an eyewitness as saying the following, quote, The army entered the city, massacred its inhabitants, pillaged and burned it, leaving it in ruins and taking prisoner all those who remained alive. The dead bodies were so many that they blocked the streets. One could not go anywhere without stepping over them. And the number of prisoners was not less than 50,000 souls. I was determined to enter the city and see this destruction with my own eyes. I tried to find a street which I would not have to walk over the corpses, but that was impossible. End quote. While Alp Arslan was taking Armenia, growing in strength, Constantine X was also busy. He was busy dying, which he finally did in 1067. Now, he made his wife promise not to remarry so that his son would succeed him and not some other man's child. But that didn't work out. His wife wanted a strong man to protect her regency and her young children until they could take over. Now, under normal circumstances, she probably would not have been allowed to remarry against her late husband, the emperor's wishes. But these were not normal circumstances. Everyone knew the army was weak. And the Seljuk Turks were ravaging the eastern provinces. So, the man she married became the next emperor in 1068. His name was Romanos IV Diogenes. Now, the good news for the Byzantines was that Romanos was a member of the military aristocracy and was therefore determined to reverse the disastrous military policies of Constantine X. This new emperor had to prove that he was worthy of the honor, worthy of violating the express wishes of his successor. And the only way to do that was military victory. So Romanos wasted no time. In 1068, he marched out, confident that he would turn this rabble at his border. The problem was that, as we've mentioned extensively already, the Byzantine military was in a poor state. The army was a mixture of Slavonians from the interior region of modern Croatia, along with Bulgarians, Armenians, and Frankish mercenaries. They were poorly led, poorly equipped, and had terrible morale. Before tackling the Seljuks, Romanos decided to secure his southeastern frontier, so he began his military career by invading the Emirate of Aleppo, with inconclusive results. So, once the year was up, he's just returned to Constantinople, leaving Albarslan to sack Amorium and continue 
terrorizing Anatolia. The next year, Romanos was no doubt feeling the pressure. As I just mentioned, the man had to prove himself to justify sitting on the throne and, well, the previous year's campaign hardly inspired confidence, hardly justified his rapid promotion. But the problems for him just kept coming, as some of those previously mentioned Frankish mercenaries rebelled, probably because they hadn't been paid, around the city of Edessa, near the modern Turkish-Syrian border. Not Edessa in Greece, mind you. So now, well, Romanos had his work cut out for him. He had the Seljuks, the Arabs, and a mercenary rebellion all on his eastern frontier. He had to put out a lot of fires. But expelling the Seljuks now came first. To that end, he brutally executed Seljuk prisoners and headed out to meet their forces, leaving some troops behind to protect the frontier. But when these forces he sent out were defeated and had to backtrack, it ultimately led to the Seljuks escaping and yet another campaign season being wasted inconclusively. Now, it was 1070, and having been largely on campaign since he took the throne, Romanus had to finally address business in the capital. First, he desperately needed to cut expenses so he could devote more resources to the army. So, he did. He cut spending on ceremonies, games, maintaining the capital, and court salaries. Now, this may have been financially prudent, but you can probably guess it made him many, many enemies in Constantinople. But at least the military establishment must love him as he was paying them so much attention. Well, no. He cracked down on corruption by military officials and enforced stricter discipline on mercenaries, succeeding in making himself unpopular with all of those groups as well. In short, he was making enemies everywhere by working hard on good governance. Because I guess you could say... As the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. Now, while Romanos was doing this, he was also determined to keep up the pressure on the Seljuks. So he sent an army only to have its commander, a relative of, of the former Emperor Isaac, captured. Now, Romanos managed to get him back by concluding a peace treaty with Albarslan, so it wasn't a total loss. But in actuality, that treaty was a trick. As the Seljuks camped in Aleppo in Syria, Romanos decided to move against them with their sort of now thinking that they must be at ease, that they must think peace has come to their frontier. So he moves to retake these two fortresses that the Seljuks had taken recently before they can respond in kind. Now Romanos was clearly very serious about this endeavor. His army numbered between 40 and 70,000 men and mercenaries. But it was a tough road. Those fortresses he sought to retake, Manzikert was the main one, sort of, was just north of Lake Vaughan, very, very deep in Anatolia. The army had to march all through the summer to get there. 
They eventually halted somewhere in central Anatolia and debated whether they should stay and fortify their positions or continue towards the fortresses they aimed to retake. Now, believing that they had succeeded in surprising Alp Arslan, Romanus decided to continue, thinking he would retake Manzikert easily. But Alp Arslan was not far away in Syria, unaware of what was happening. He was at the head of 30,000 cavalry, and he knew precisely where Romanus was. But Romanus's confidence in himself seemed to know no bounds, because he believed that taking the fortress of Manzikert would be so easy, he divided his forces in half, sending his elite Varangian guard, those Viking warriors, along with his best generals and a force of Pechenegs and Franks, to attack the nearby fortress of Kliat, which had also been taken by the Seljuks. Now, Romanos had even lost his numerical of advantage against Alp Arslan, and he didn't even know it. While sources don't say much about this, it appears that that breakaway force he sent to Kliat was destroyed by the Seljuks, easily. Now, it was just about time for Romanos and Alp Arslan to finally meet. But in the meantime, Romanos was right about one thing. Manzikert did fall easily. Now, this likely meant that Romanos was feeling even more relaxed, feeling victory at hand and unaware entirely of the destruction of half of his forces. The man not only couldn't see what was right in front of him, he didn't even seem to want to. But that would all change soon. Namely, when a Byzantine foraging party discovered the Seljuk forces. But still, somehow Romanos refused to believe what he could see. He didn't want to believe that this was the main Seljuk force. He didn't want to believe that his movements were known by the enemy. How many men, we have to think, had to die for his hubris? for his inability to see what was in front of him? Well, the short answer is more. Romanos sent some cavalry to take care of what he thought was a small Seljuk force. They were wiped out. Finally, realizing that something might be happening, Romanos finally drew up his forces into a battle line. As night fell, the Seljuks hid in the hills. A battle would have to wait. The next day began with Turkic mercenaries defecting to the Seljuks. Right around this time, almost miraculously, Alp Arslan offered peace. Yet, Romanos refused. He had been arrogant up to this point, so why stop now? And in any case, he had traveled a very long way. And several times, in fact. He'd traveled this far way too many times. And undoubtedly, he wanted to end this eastern problem. Today, if possible. He was a busy man. Luckily for him, the battle would begin that very day. Now, initially, things went well for the Byzantines. That is, until a rival of the emperors disobeyed his orders to cover their forces as they pulled back to the fortress of Manzikert. At that moment, the left and the right wings, which had held up under intense Seljuk arrow fire, c 
collapsed. Before they knew what was happening, the emperor and his Varangian guard were surrounded and captured. Now, sure, the Bulgarians had killed their share of Byzantine emperors, but they had never never succeeded in capturing one alive. Now the Seljuks had done just that. The emperor was brought before Alp Arslan in muddied rags. The Seljuk leader initially refused to believe that this could possibly be the great emperor of the Romans. But once his identity had been proven, Alp Arslan placed his foot on Romanos' neck and forced him to kiss the ground. You can see a painting of this on the website. At that moment, the men had the following conversation, which has been passed down through the centuries. Alp Arslan asked, what would you do if I brought if I were brought before you as a prisoner? Romanos replied, Perhaps I would kill you, or exhibit you in the streets of Constantinople. To which Alp Arslan had the simple response, My punishment is far heavier. I forgive you and set you free. Shockingly, somehow, Alp Arslan, in spite of all the reasons not to, treated Romanos with kindness, offering the same peace treaty he had before the battle. After some negotiation, territory was surrendered, a large ransom negotiated, and a marriage between the son of Alp Arslan and the daughter of Romanos. But ultimately, in spite of this, the Byzantines were set to hold on to the core of their Anatolian territories. The defeat of Manzikert could have been a far greater disaster, but it seemed like Romanos, much like Tsar Simeon always seemed to, could pull a mild setback from the jaws of an epic disaster. So not much had been lost. But questions still hung in the air. True, Byzantium for now held on to its key Anatolian provinces, but for how long? Remember, these territories had for centuries provided the economic and military backbone of the empire. Once they were lost, Byzantium could become more and more of just a city-state and less of an empire. It was a real danger. But those questions will have to wait for another day. In the meantime, Romanos had to get back home. But home, Constantinople had not stood still while Romanos was away. The Caesar, the lower co-emperor, if you'll remember, John Ducas and Constantine X's son Michael together had forced Constantine X's wife and Romanos' wife now to retire to a monastery. These usurpers wanted Romanos gone and certainly weren't about to agree to the terms that he had just negotiated with Alp Arslan in spite of how generous they might have seemed. So, it was time for another civil war. Now, luckily for the Byzantines, it was a short one. Romanos was quickly defeated and agreed to be exiled on an island in the Sea of Marmara. Wishing to maintain his agreement to Alp Arslan as best he could, he sent all the money he had along with a note saying, As emperor, I promised you a ransom of a million and a half. Dethroned and about to become dependent upon others, I send you all I possess as proof of my gratitude. End quote. Well, 
Romanos may have been a bit of a fool and hubristic to boot, but, well, the man had honor. But in spite of that honor, as a final insult against Romanos, he was blinded and denied medical treatment for the wounds. In effect, he was banished to die a slow, painful death on that small island. And so that's where he spent his last days, in horrible pain, only able to feel the breezes coming from that city and that empire he had so recently ruled. He was unable to see Seljuk armies, to see the enemies he was making at home. And as a result, now, he couldn't even see his hands in front of his face. Shortly after, in 1072, he died of those festering wounds where those misused eyes had once been. And so, as a result, in 1071, Constantine X's son Michael became Emperor Michael VII. But just as Constantinople didn't stop its machinations while Romanos was away, neither had the Balkans. In the past few years, the Hungarians had taken Belgrade and slaughtered the Pechenegs the Byzantines called on for help. The Hungarians continued to niche, destroying everything in their path. A Byzantine historian put it thusly, quote, The Emperor Michael VII was afflicted by a myriad troubles. The Scythians overran Thrace and Macedonia, and the Slavic people threw off the Roman yoke and laid waste to Bulgaria, taking plunder and leaving scorched earth. Skopje and Niche were sacked, and all the towns around the river Sava and beside the Danube between Sirmium and Vidin suffered greatly. Furthermore, the Croats and the Duklians throughout the whole of Dalmatia rose in rebellion. End quote. So that's how things stood. The Pechenegs were invading the lower Danube, the Hungarians were taking cities in the central Balkans, the Normans were kicking the Byzantines out of Italy, the Battle of Manzikert broke the Byzantines in the east, and Romanos was reaping what Constantine X had sown. Now it was time for Michael to reap as well. Because just at this moment, a Bulgarian noble in far-off Skopje was watching all of these events with great interest. Georgi Wojtek saw this moment as his chance to remake Bulgaria, to rise up and finish what the uprising of Peter Delian had started three decades earlier. But first, he needed royal blood. He needed a new Tsar. Peter Delian, royal or not, well, he had been betrayed. He had been stuck at the Byzantines when they were no he had struck at the Byzantines when they were stronger than they were now, and he had nearly won, so it made sense. Wojtek believed that Bulgaria was not yet defeated, that this was a better moment. And he knew that if he needed a Tsar, well, the blood of the last Bulgarian dynasty still ran through the veins of a royal family. And that royal family had been defeating the Byzantines for the last several decades. Now, who are we talking about? Well, if you'll remember several episodes back, Samuel married his daughter to the successor of the rulers of Duklia, only to be betrayed by them later. Well, that house still has his family's blood rolling through their veins. So, Wojtek sent off to our old friend Mikhailo Vojislavovich, Prince of the Serbs, as he was referring to himself at the time. And now, Mikhailo was still nominally a Byzantine ally, but 
He saw the chance to vastly expand his power and influence at Byzantine expense. And unsurprisingly, considering his own history of fighting the Byzantines, he took the chance. Now, he had other obligations, so Mikhailo instead sent his son to fulfill this task. Constantine Bodin was sent to prison in modern Kosovo at Wojtek's request. There, in late 1072, Bodin was crowned Tsar Peter III. <laughs> Needless to say, an interesting choice of name, considering what had happened to Tsar Peter II. Now, unfortunately, and a bit strangely for this young uprising, Tsar Peter's father only sent 300 soldiers and a loyal commander along with him. But still, there were other forces at his disposal. But honestly, to take a moment out of this, it's a bit confusing to me, because the way I see it, if you're going to send your son to lead an uprising against the Byzantines, it makes sense to really back him as much as you can. Why Mikhailo didn't do this, I don't know. But in any case, the Byzantines were taking this very seriously. And immediately upon hearing about the rebellion, they sent reinforcements to assist the forces they already had in the area. While they were en route, the Byzantine commander of Skopje, Nikoforos Karantenos, moved towards Prizren. Just at the eve of the battle, Damianos Dalesenos, the commander sent from Constantinople, also arrived and took over command. Now evidently, he was, how to put it, far from an inspiring commander. He resorted to taunting and insulting his soldiers before battle. And of course, well, we've seen similar tactics work in big sports movies, but, well, let's just say this was not Remember the Titans. Because in the battle that followed, the Byzantine forces were massacred. It was a complete rout. Now, curiously, this battle isn't named, and we really don't have any details about it probably because the Byzantines didn't want to dwell on this loss, but it was a major early victory. In response, the Bulgarians across the Byzantine Empire proclaimed Peter III as the new Bulgarian Tsar. Well, many Bulgarians across the empire, as we'll see. Now it was time to retake Bulgaria, so Peter divided his forces in half. Half of them went north to Niche, with Peter at the helm, while the other half moved south, towards the city of Castoria via Ohrid. Castoria, if you're curious, is a bit south of Lake Ohrid and Lake Prespa in modern Greece. But not all the Bulgarians were ready to recognize Peter. Now, hard to say, perhaps it was because he was a Serb? I mean, he had Bulgarian royal blood, but remember, Samuel and his family were themselves upstarts. Even at the height of their power, many people betrayed them, and they always had to look behind their back for daggers. Or perhaps people didn't want to recognize Peter III because they didn't believe his uprising could succeed, just as they feared that Peter II's couldn't succeed. And maybe they were just afraid of what the Byzantines would do to anyone who betrayed them. But in either case, many people refused to bow to Peter III. Sadly for them, both of his armies burned any settlement which refused to do so. Now, Ohrid, for its part, surrendered without a fight, because its walls still lay in ruins after having been destroyed by Basil II more than 50 years previously. Its commander fled to Castoria. But there, the local commander, 
was a clever man of Slavic descent named Boris David. He led their combined forces along with many Bulgarians who refused to acknowledge Peter as their ruler against the Bulgarian rebels and crushed them in yet another unnamed battle. This half of Peter's army, the southern half, was forced to flee back through the mountains, desperately looking for safety. Now, unfortunately, things weren't going that much better in the north. True, Peter III faced no real opposition there, but he was treating his subjects even worse than the Byzantines had. Even worse than that, when the Byzantines marched on Skopje, Peter couldn't be bothered to retire from his raiding, his raiding of territories that were nominally his anyways, to go assist Georgi Vojtech, the man who had put him on the throne to begin with. So Vojtech was captured along with Skopje in 1072. He had instigated an uprising. He had no royal blood. So there was nothing for the Byzantines to do but execute him. So the man who saw a future for Bulgaria, who believed that royal blood could bring it back from the dead, died a betrayed man. A man who had been forced to watch all of his dreams be consumed by greed and hubris. We can only imagine what he was thinking when the sword met his neck. Now at this point, Peter didn't have much of an army left. The support of the people was melting away, and his will to resist the Byzantines was melting with it. But he had one more battle left in him. Sadly, it was an easy Byzantine victory, conducted on the Kosovo fields, the same fields where the Serbs would base the greatest defeat of their history in just a few short centuries. Peter was captured and sent to Constantinople, and ultimately to Antioch in far-off Syria as a prisoner. His father, who was still king in Duclea, or prince of the Serbs, rather, sent an army to retrieve his son, but its mercenary commander defected to the Byzantines and his son remained captured. In 1073, the rebellion was totally crushed. It had been a disaster. Wojtek had made the mistake of giving the Bulgarian crown to a greedy and uncaring man, leading to the second rebellion to spill so much Bulgarian blood in a mere 30 years. Indeed, there were many alive to see this rebellion who had seen the uprising of Peter Delian fail. There had been those who had been alive during that uprising who still remembered the time of Samuel. In that sense, really, it had been just two lifetimes since the end of the first Bulgarian Empire. But these rebellions showed the memory was still alive. But that only left the question, how long could that memory survive? Particularly when those doubtless treasured it found themselves lying dead on so many fields and in so many mountain passes and so many rebellions. Mikhail Voyaslavovich had other sons, true, but now his relationship with the Byzantines was ruined. There was, it seemed kind of unlikely that any of his other sons were going to take up the Bulgarian crown, that were going to bring their royal blood to bear and try to revive the state. Now, the Serbs in, de- in this state had to kind of figure out how to survive themselves. Next time, we'll see how they survived and what the aftermath of the return of Byzantine rule to Bulgarian lands would look like. Now, this episode was written by me, Eric Halsey, produced by Lance Nelson, and got research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. 
The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, listen to us on SoundCloud, email us, uh, send us a message on Facebook, get in touch, donate on Patreon, all that good stuff. You know what to do. Lastly, as always, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgaria Now podcast created by Lance Nelson. You can hear an awesome audio tour of Sofia and discussions about all kinds of issues living in Bulgaria today. In the meantime, as always, Uspech, or good luck. <laughs>